Planet Worker, a world in development. Buka, 2017. Buka is on edge. The normal undercurrent of low intensive communal violence has been dramatically brought to the surface by two intersecting events, distinctively Bougainvillian. The first is the unrest sparked by rumours of witchcraft which has led to the burning of a few houses in a nearby village. Sorcery-related violence is a major issue for PNG and Bougainville, and rumours lead very quickly to deadly attacks on individuals and groups. The second incident is of communal payback. A drunken brawl in central Arawa down south led to the death of a southerner, apparently by a member of a local community on the outskirts of Buka in the north. The community members down south travelled to avenge their tribal member and according to this morning's Bush Telegraph, are on the way to the nearby village. Our local staff in the Buka office are understandably rattled. They live here, their families and communities are directly affected by these events and they know how quickly disaster can unfold. Whenever violence erupts, old feuds and tribal tensions fuel the conflict and everyone is at risk. Three of us in the group are outsiders. One is a mainlander and most at risk. The other two internationals in Buka to conduct a review of programs and are scheduled to head down the west coast to visit a remote program area. All three of us are intent on heading out, partly to fulfil our trip purpose, partly to escape the hyper-anxiety of Buka and our staff. We make arrangements to close the office for the day and head out to our transport for the next couple of days, an open longboat with outboard motor piloted by an animated skipper. Water and food is quickly chucked in the boat, fuel cans checked and two life vests borrowed from an adjacent boat owner and we're ready to go. A few machetes are handed over for good measure. We're headed to Kanoa, a small settlement on the west coast of Bougainville. For the past four weeks it has been isolated by the collapse of a bridge on the track connecting it to the two main towns of Buka and Arawa, and accessibility is only possible by boat. The skipper guns the motor and we're soon slicing our way through the commuter ferry traffic crossing the Buka Channel. As we skim over the kaleidoscope of reef coral and out to the open ocean in the west, I feel my mood lift. Who knows what awaits us in the next few days, but for now we are alive and free and the day is beautiful. We wind our way down the coast trying to spot anything of interest in the mangroves along the uninhabited shoreline. A few boats passed us going up and down, shouting greetings as we shoot by. After a couple of hours, we slow to survey a sandbar that serves as an entrance to the river we need to access. The skipper takes his time to take the measure of the bubbling tide and with an appropriate swell, speeds us through the waves and into the channel. It's touch and go, but we make it through unscathed and enter the Atsinima River our gateway to inland Kunoa. The river is not large and we wind our way slowly through beds of water lilies, broken branches and hidden rocks below the surface. Along the banks, saltwater crocodiles lazily watch us pass by 
a few sliding into the water to pay more interest. I make a mental note not to trail my fingers in the water as I have been doing on the ocean side. The landscape is lush, forest all around, with a cacophony of bird and monkey calls creating the audio backdrop. We are in remote territory and fortunate to have the safety of a knowledgeable and trustworthy boat crew who themselves are paying a great deal of attention to any perceived threat. As we head inland, the river is tough going. At points we have to alight and walk to allow the boat to float higher over obstacles. It's incredibly humid and mosquitoes are everywhere. We're also wary of criminal gangs, called rascals, who have been known to viciously attack travellers along this route and make off with whatever they can. Finally, we round a bend and are suddenly faced with a fearsome-looking man in traditional dress, holding an extraordinary large machete and peering intently at our party. For a moment, my heart skips a beat and I'm surveying escape routes. He breaks out in a broad, beetle-stained grin and bellows a welcome to our crew. He's the lookout and calls the welcome party, a community group dressed in traditional gear who sing us a gorgeous welcome song and lead us to the settlement. Undoubtedly one of the best and most relief-inducing welcomes I've ever received. The settlement at Kuno is the focus for a range of programs focused on women and youth. It's centred around an old colonial administration building and compound, both maintained in reasonable shape. The district administrator is a garrulous man happy to have visitors and we are soon listening to a barrage of anecdotes, commentary and news over instant coffee delivered as part of our boatload. The news is about communication, or lack of it, between Kunoa and the outside world. A recent dispute over land royalties between the local community and a Papua New Guinea mobile telco led to the dramatic toppling of the mobile phone tower by a few disgruntled community members. Cutting any mobile phone communication from the settlement. The telco are yet to send a repair team, both due to the inaccessibility of the area and the risk of attack of their teams. For now and for the foreseeable future, there'll be no mobile coverage here. Unfortunately, at the same time, someone had stolen the aerial for the VHF radio in the administration office, rendering this inoperable as well. And so, Kunoa is cut off in both written and spoken form from the rest of Bougainville and relies on boat-carried word-of-mouth communications or even hand-carried written letters. It's an old-world problem with quaintly old-world solutions and only the fallen mobile tower reminds us of the modern option. We bunked down for the night in an airy visitor's residence, chatting till late with our enthusiastic host. It's a pleasant and peaceful evening and we fall asleep to the sounds of the surrounding forest and the whine of swarms of mosquitoes. The next day brings celebration and colour as community groups congregate on the compound for a sharing event, an award ceremony introduced to popularise the community programmes. Youth groups from around the district arrive, 
competing to look the coolest in an amazing mixture of traditional and hip-hop cultural clothes and accessories. Beetle nut stained smiles and hair accessories abound as the youth rehearse dramatic enactments of their disaster risk reduction and leadership development programs. It's invigorating and impressive stuff and testament to how important youth-focused programs can be to stimulate the leadership and vibrancy of young people in their communities. But there is risk too, as one of the groups has to apologise for the damage its members had invoked on the com compound water tank while on a recent drunken raid. The potentially volatile situation is adroitly navigated, face is saved and the celebrations continue without incident for now. The importance of the disaster risk reduction programs become evident in the course of the day's presentations. Ocean flooding and saltwater inundation are impacting heavily on coastline areas with loss of fertile land and drinking water sources. Fire is more prevalent in dry seasons and agricultural yield is dropping. There's not much to draw on to mitigate these efforts with little funding available for investments beyond more pressing immediate needs. Beyond the environmental, the main social hazards are those presented by marginalised and disaffected youth. Violence, adolescent parenthood, substance abuse, vandalism and criminality are commonplace as a result. In this context, youth activism and leadership is a precious commodity and well worth the investment even if the tangibility of benefits are difficult to present. Despite this, social investments in youth and household welfare remain pitifully small and most provided by NGOs such as mine. In these celebrations and awards, I see the full value of this investment and take note to reflect this in our review. The day ends peacefully, the groups return to their homes and we retire tired and happy for the night. It's been a good day, and my belief in the power of young people is restored once again. Over coffee, we bid farewell to the administrator early next morning and head for the river and a much lighter load. On this leg, we're joined by a number of chickens, claw-tied and clucking on the floor of the boat. Not much else to take back, besides our thoughts and new memories. Back in Buka, the situation has calmed somewhat. Sorcery has apparently abated and the rumoured attack from the south has not eventuated. An uneasy calm has settled and we're able to debrief with our colleagues in the afternoon. Before finishing, I'm handed a letter from the Kunoa administrator eloquently requesting a radio aerial. It's a common dilemma for NGOs. This is a government responsibility, but not likely to be addressed soon, if ever. For a few hundred dollars, a community connected. I persuade my local colleagues to add it to their programme budget as part of their risk reduction investment. I hope this breaks the radio silence.